Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host. Today, we'll be talking with Jennifer Lemon, Derek Mueller, and Kate Pantelidis, author of Try This, Research Methods for Writers. And if I got your names mispronounced, you can correct me. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Does somebody want to go first? I will. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I'm Jennifer Clary Lemon, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Waterloo in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. And I first got interested in in this project probably dually because research methods have been uh, a long standing interest of mine, but also collaborating with Kate and Derek um, was something that I was really looking forward to doing with this book. So those are kind of two things that came together in the making of this project for me. And I'm Kate Pantelidis. I'm an associate professor and the director of general education English at Middle Tennessee State University. Um, It's just outside of Nashville. And um, I I think I'll echo Jen. Um, Research methods is one of my primary areas of research and a longstanding interest. And um, and Derek and I, um, many years ago at this time, um, actually were um, directing a writing program. um, And we had the experience of reading lots and lots of textbooks for first year writing. And there are a lot of great books out there, but we started some conversations about Sort of what it would be, what would be great, what would we like to see in a textbook, and I think those conversations continued, um, and uh, and then I was excited when we had the opportunity um, to work with um, to Jen with to work with Jen and Derek to write together, and um, and this book kind of came together rather organically out of our interests, our, our research backgrounds, and the fact that we had all written together in other um, other projects. And I'll introduce now, I'm, I'm Derek Mueller, and I 
am a professor in the English department at Virginia Tech, where I also direct the university writing program. And I, I suppose my response in terms of where this book came from echoes things Jen and Kate have already expressed. I guess I would only add that you know, one of the one of the the best to me, one of the real valuable elements of a career is that uh, over years you begin to you, you you maintain conversation with colleagues who you learn a lot from, and to me this this book is sort of representative of some of the best takeaways um, among us as people who talked often, who checked in about the classes we were teaching and the ways we were teaching them, and kind of um, uh, learned. Uh, with uh, kind of alongside one another about um, uh, what were really some of the promising dimensions of our teaching as related to um, sponsoring research methods with undergraduate and graduate students and the programs we were working in. So, um, you know, over time, these, these ideas, I think, took shape among that kind of a, a, just a sustaining dialogue, regular check-ins and sharing resources with one another. Now, in your book, you indicated that there's more to writing. Tell us more about that. So I think part of um, what orients all of our approaches to the classroom and certainly to teaching writing is this understanding of rhetoric um, as sort of the the grounding um, foundation for effective teaching of writing. So certainly it can be um, appealing and um and it would be great if it were the case to just tell students, like, these are the rules about writing and they're unbreakable. And But we know through experience that that's not the case, that there's a lot of conventions for writing and a rhetorical understanding of writing, um, although complex and sometimes confusing and difficult, is really um, the only approach to teaching writing that is transferable and that is um, that ends up being really exciting um, with students. So... I think that's that's part of what we're getting at and saying that there's there's more to writing um, when you take a rhetorical perspective of approaching writing of um, for students composing writing and then for faculty for teaching writing um, when we have this this perspective it's um, it's generative and um, and also reflective of how writing functions in the classroom in the world in um, in context. Yeah. And just to build on what Kate said, I think another perspective that we're really privileging in this book is that there's more to writers than just the expectation that they're going to engage quickly with a text and then write a research paper that really we're encouraging uh, instructors to see student writers as researchers um, with things to say and the ability to conduct primary research rather than only digest secondary uh, resources and then kind of amalgamate them or synthesize them into a final paper. In your book, you talk about research that's always incomplete. What does that mean? Well, I, I guess I'll take an attempt at that. I mean, I, I, I think that means that um, research questions, uh, they they may play out over quite a long time. And we may, as researchers, think we've collected data or evidence that responds well to that question in a given place and time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the question is sort of um, uh, finally resolved for all time for all people. What, one thing we often come up against when sponsoring and encouraging student writing um, you know, with, with folks who are brand new at university is that they may have questions that are new for them, 
but not so new for, you know, maybe they've been addressed somewhere else by someone else. Um, uh, so I think for us is to acknowledge that um, uh, just just like uh, human development is an ongoing project, just like uh, life on this planet is a is a continuing um, kind of open open ended um, um, kind of horizon. So too are the questions that guide us through that, um, not meant to be truncated or sort of shut down. Upon arriving at questions that are suffi- uh, answers to questions that are sufficient for now. So it is it is maybe a mindset of of just open endedness that we're urging people to sort of recognize and, and reckon with in this in the framing of this book. Chapter one, you suggest that the reader spend time reading, thinking, and talking about the nature of research. Why is this important? I think this is central to um, to our book broadly and to our approach and how we um, how we inter- interact with each other, right? Again, sort of the way that this book developed was us talking about our research and our writing. Um, but writing is something that happens um, in interaction. And, and even though we may say, well, I was writing by myself in my room, nobody was there, it was quiet. Um, there are always, um, particularly when we're doing research, there's always the people who have had questions before us to whom we are responding. Um, and a lot of what we try to do in this book is to encourage students and, and people broadly who are engaging in research to recognize all the people who are around them, all the influences and um, the intertextual nature of writing that we're always kind of pulling from other texts that have existed. Um, sometimes I think some, you know, maybe that seems anti-romantic. There is something um, sort of that has been sort of um, romanticized about writing as being sort of this isolating um, experience. But we definitely find that, um, particularly in sort of the way we're encouraging folks to use this book, that writing and research um, is something that happens in communities, happens effectively in communities. And that's what we're trying to do consistently with offering um, uh, activities for students um, to not just read about writing, but to try the various um, opportunities that we that we posit um, will help them engage in the writing process. Because we think writing is most effective um, when you acknowledge the people around you who are participating and you kind of make explicit those various connections to other scholars, to other um, colleagues who are perhaps interested in the same things that you are. Now, tell us about the try this section, because this is so very interactive for students and teachers. I thought it was fascinating. Tell us about it. I think one of the main principles of the book, a part that we privilege, um, is the rhetorical canon of invention. And so that was the guiding principle of creating this opportunity for students as they made their way through the book to try different um not, not necessarily even, you know, a com- complete research project, but little bits of inventive material that, that then got them thinking about their own interests in relation to um, some of the conceptual models that we put forward in the book and also some specific research methods that are throughout the book. Um, that really it comes from thinking that, you know, we, we learn best when we do things, not just when we read about doing things or we, we read about someone else, you know, who's undertaken something. Uh, so that, that was really the under, undergirding philosophy of, um, 
of the try this portion of the text. I would just tag onto that quickly to say my sense of the, the try this moments throughout the book, it's actually sort of connected to the previous question too about why it's, why it's um, worthwhile to acknowledge uh, what it is to be a researcher and why we all uh, have really a lot of possibilities as researchers. It's that curiosity need not be passive. I mean, curiosity, um, it's to check in with, with writers at whatever stages, whether they're beginners or more experienced and to, to ask, well, what are you curious about? And then how are, how are you um, sort of tracking toward those curiosities more actively? Uh, The try this sort of moments in the book are, um, like Jen just said, uh, meant they're, they're, they're dialed toward invention and they're meant to be invitational occasions for students to really um, uh, kind of enact, uh, carry out, um, uh, or to pursue maybe um, those curiosities as something active uh, and, in, and in, you know, to, with purpose. Now, there's a quote in your book, interesting research is complex. Why? Um, I think maybe it it connects to that sort of initial idea about rhetoric, um, that communication research is complex. And often there is a tendency and it's a, I mean, it's certainly understandable impulse to simplify things, um, particularly when we're teaching at the college level, often to first year students. And we we think this book is scalable um, across different, um, experiential levels at the university. Um, but I've used it with a number of first year students. And so my approach, and again, the approach that we're, we are offering in this text is to not tell students that things are simple, um, particularly writing and research. We just tell them that it's complex because we trust them. Um, we have a lot of faith in students and we have certainly found that by telling them the truth about these experiences, about, um, about the way that knowledge is developed, um, when it's effective and ethical, that it's really complex. And we have found that by, by offering that as a foundation and being honest about that experience, that maybe there will be times in your research process where you're a little confused or you're unsure, or it may feel like you're um, coming upon something new. You're having an experience with your writing that you haven't had before. Um, we welcome those. We think that's what happens when you um, embark on a really effective ethical research project, that you will learn new things. And so we want to kind of be honest about that from the from the um, outset, and then um, encourage students to engage, even if at times the work they're doing feels difficult. And so I think it's hard to set up that kind of environment where students are willing to take risks and to um, take on difficult challenges. But we have found in our own teaching that being um, forthright with the challenges and then engaging students in sort of the excitement and curiosity that is part of those challenges that they usually get really excited and they, they get on board and then they find out amazing things. And then as their faculty, we, we get to learn those amazing things through students too. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. 
Now, you suggest that the thesis statement should be the last thing developed in this writing process. Explain that to us. I mean, I'll, I'll take a go with that. I, just to kind of um, go back to what Kate was saying, I think that often with published research, which is generally what students and, and faculty wind up reading for our own research, um, the process by which that research was done is almost completely obfuscated. And so in a final publication, it looks like it was neat. Um, it looks like they knew exactly what they wanted to find out, did the thing, and then found it out and then tied it up with a little bow, sent it off to a, a journal, and then it was published. Um, and so what we're really trying to do in privileging complexity and saying, you know, you don't have a thesis statement till later is because you can't know what you don't know, right? You have to go through the process of research. You have to try out methodological tools. You have to refine your research question before you can kind of work through the details of how you can answer it, which is ultimately what a thesis statement winds up being. So if you start with something that you already think you know um, in that safe, unrisky place, you're not really privileging discovery you're just kind of telling yourself and everyone else what's already known. And so um, the business of, of just waiting out that thesis has everything to do with, with the research process itself and how we perceive finished research and what the actual process looks like in, in reality, which is quite messy. Now, you gave an example of the clean water. How does this connect with people, places, things, and visual matter? You talk about that in, in your book. Well, the clean water example is just meant to be an illustration of a fairly complex contemporary issue um, that uh, many students have uh, everyday experience with and, and therefore perhaps an interest in um, in part because it, it, it may be that they haven't asked a lot of questions about where their water comes from, where it's sourced, how it reaches the places they take it from, um, and where and 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 where it goes and how it's processed um, thereafter. Uh, it, it, you know, I, I um, spent a good a good amount of my life in Michigan. The Flint water crisis was uh, a major fiasco and one that um, is still playing out today. The health consequences. Uh, of municipal water systems are um, they're they're actually a, a growing pressing concern for I think a lot of a lot of places in the United States um, whether that's through water source um, you know the, the it's in the news right now in Mississippi right um, so uh, we've seen student projects that really get into questions about um, you know bottled water uh, how much how much of uh, municipal water source ought to be routinely circulated as a source of information. Students going to municipal water treatment centers and talking to someone who works there to find out how frequently it's tested and uh, learning a little bit more about that. It, it, again, it's, it's sort of back to that curiosity drive and sponsoring wonder. Um, uh, it, it starts with sort of an acknowledgement of there's, there's something in the world in my everyday life that I don't know a whole lot about, but that's essential to my, um, getting to getting to another day, uh, and I think not taking for granted that water is always easily available. This is uh, for many students we see in university. It's uh, um, I, I just think it's a as an example, it's illustrative of how uh, um, how something in the everyday can actually track towards sort of a fairly expansive um, and nuanced 
uh, snowball of, of, of really useful, timely, important questions. Now you talk about work nits. What are they and why are they so important? I mean, WorkNets ultimately are an inventional heuristic or tool that um, that we can use to engage in a deep way with a single text. So it's a it's a different way of working with uh, academic sources than perhaps you know sending students to the library to find three to five sources and write a summary on them. Um, or conversely, read one source and then only take material from the first paragraph or, or, the, or the conclusion. So it's a way to sustain engagement with one particular text in four different ways. That's, that's WorkNets in a nutshell, but I'll let my, my colleagues follow up. I think a lot of the work that we're trying to do, um, certainly in the Try This interludes and in the book overall, um, is to interrupt some of the mechanized ways students might have of approaching writing and approaching their research. And maybe one of the most sort of rote things that students often bring to uh, behaviors that students often bring to the university um, is, is what Jen said, that they've had this experience of like, I have to find five books um, I'm going to do that, um, but I'm not necessarily going to develop relationships with them. I'm not going to dwell with them and actually really learn that one source. And so um, this WorkNets offers a really, I think, exciting way to interrupt that experience and to invite students into what can be a really exciting, um, surprising experience of a book. Um, I'll, I'll invite Derek to talk a little bit more about it because this comes from some research that he did. Yeah, thanks, Kate. I mean, I yeah, I, I've been working with uh, WorkNets as a as a sort of an approach to, um, you know, to 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 uh, showing sort of modeling how we interact with texts. There's something to me about WorkNets that's just more truthful about how experienced um, experienced writers and experienced readers interact with texts to understand them more comprehensively as interconnected to the world and kind of threaded through different dimensions of the place and time they were, they were produced in or the people who did the writing or the key, the, the ideas and the sources that are um, uh, kind of uh, informed and sort of brought in to bear on the text. So I, I just think that, you know, we oftentimes hear from uh, students and faculty alike that it's, it's not a skill set we should take for granted that students have everything they need to read, especially academic sources, well. Um, and oftentimes, again, as Kate and Jen have both just said, I mean, it's quite commonplace, actually, to just say, you know, go collect a bunch of articles, work those into your writing. And that's the extent of the instructions that lead up to this sort of research-based academic writing. Well, we're just really trying to slow that way down and say, no, actually, there's there's so much to it that we we should not take for granted, and we shouldn't expect students to know already how to do upon arrival um, in in this class in these classes we teach. WorkNets break that down. They 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 you know you, you can work with them quickly, you can work with them slowly, but they're meant to key on um, a more honest kind of um, uh, model of working through the richness that sources the, the multitudes right that sources contain. 
working with words. Tell us about this analysis and how this can help the students. So in each chapter, we take on um, a different kind of work. And again, we invite students to think about um, their writing as work. Um, hopefully, you know, not we're not trying to have connections with drudgery, um, but with the idea that you have to put something into your writing, that you have to, that maybe it'll take some um, some emotion and, and certainly a lot of thought. So we ask students to think about working with words, as you noted, working with places, um, working with people, um, working with visuals. And so in working with words, um, you know, the three of us are people who really love language, and that's kind of what drew us to working together. Um, the three of us do a lot of our own research on language, and um, discourse analysis is a, is a big part of the work that I do. So in this, um, in this chapter, we offer some different methods for students to um, help them see words as, as objects that provide information that they might not think about that. Um, I mean, I think every tool, every method that we talk about is a way of offering some distance between us and the things that we take, we might take for granted because they're sort of in our work, in our world all the time. And so we offer, um, methods of textual analysis that will help students see patterns in writing um, and have a little distance from words that they might be familiar with um, such that they can recognize them in larger contexts and sort of understand the kinds of work that words do in the world. I'll follow that quickly with just an, an example from our own from from the book, which is where we break down the etymology of, of the word methods into metahodos. And doing those those very light Kind of even passing gestures where we say, yeah, words words uh, have a history. They they build up over time. They have uh, many valences of meaning, and depending on who you ask, they might come at that. Um, uh, they they might return a kind of a an account of what a word has meant for them, or maybe meant for someone they cared about. Um, that is that actually bears new insight. So I think I think part of the point of working with words is in, in not taking for granted it, it, that words are. Um, merely one dimensional and that their meanings have been stamped out and settled. It's instead to sort of invest language with life and meaning that is forever unfolding. Um, and so to the point of Hodos, for example, as a part of method, right? I actually happen to have open a, a tab on my computer where I've lately been looking into the root Hodos and this, this uh, notion of Hodology, which is the, the study of roads or paths. Um, and, and, uh, I think there's a lot to be said there for recognizing that methods are about a, a kind of a wayfaring or sort of a wayfinding. Um, and coincidentally, the the general education program at my current university, Virginia Tech, is called Pathways. So it's mm-hmm. it's actually there's a there's a there's a resonance, I guess, is what I'm saying between Hodos in method and this kind of notion of roads and pathways and wayfaring and wayfinding that really is. Um, in other ways, kind of conceptually etched into what we understand uh, undergraduate and graduates moving through as they navigate a program of study. Another thing you brought up that I think will help uh, in the engagement of students is visuals. Tell, Tell us about how to include these visuals in teaching. 
Derek, do you want to talk about I'm that? Thinking, I, yeah, I'm thinking about the question. Um, well, I maybe would just start by supposing that, I mean, I'm not sure that teaching has a kind of a natural modality or a primary modality. Um, sure, a lot of teaching and learning happens through uh, verbal exchanges, um, but we're also engaging with, with text, asking students to read and sometimes reread in class. Uh, but the visual, the visual component of it is meant um, in some ways to be also a reminder of the playfulness of some of these things. I mean, it's not uncommon for me to ask students to do some drawing in a, in a writing class. Um, and occasionally students will resist that. But, uh, but it's also meant to return them to a time in their life, which may, for some of us, maybe a long time ago, when, when uh, working with visuals, making visuals, engaging visuals playfully or with materials that are not, you know, maybe everyday conventionally used in college, like crayons, let's say, um, can return us to a, a frame of mind, which is sort of the beginner's mind or um, a time when literacy activities were actually really, really fun and open-ended and inviting. So uh, there is, I think there's a, a, an edge of playfulness that's invited and kind of queued up by the role visuals play, at least in my teaching, I can't speak for, for Kate and Jen so much about that point. Um, and I think the only other point I would make is that we know that uh, I mean, we have evidence that, that visual elements are engaging. People like to have, when they're reading texts, this is true, especially in research articles, when they're working with texts, making sense of them, um, visual elements can be extraordinarily augmentative to both engagement and understanding. So we shouldn't take those elements for granted. And instead, we, we through this project, I think, have um, sought to, I don't know, just bring, bring those visual elements a little nearer to the front channel as something that, that writers uh, may more intentionally work with and build their texts around and through, um, not as a kind of a secondary or a, 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 a kind of a, uh, an unimportant element in, um, in contemporary writing. And let me just add to that. I, you know, I'm, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, Derek. I think no, um, <laughs> that both Jen and I um, uh, work a lot with words, and that's a big piece of what we brought to this um, this project. And um, Jen also extensively works in archives. Um, but I'll just note that when I started um, collaborating with Derek, visuals actually weren't so much a part of my research um, and my writing, and. Um, and that has always been a really important part of his research. And I think um, our collaborations have consistently reminded me how important it is to maybe step out of spaces that feel really comfortable to you. Um, and as a, a researcher um, and a teacher, that's such a good reminder because students were consistently asking students to do things that may not come so immediately easy to them. And so when I started thinking about including visuals in my own research more extensively um, in collaboration, particularly with Derek, I learned so much. And it was an interesting experience to not feel as sure about the modality in which I was composing. And, and I thought, you know, what an, I learned so much from that experience. So I often tell students that, that um, now a really important part of my teaching is incorporating um, not just visuals, but just the notion of making and sort of tangible products that go beyond writing. So often I incorporate artifacts in my classroom. Um, you know, we have this chapter of working with things, and that's a really important part of my pedagogy. So multimodality um, is certainly laced throughout this 
this project, just asking students to really think about composition. And composition can be in visuals. It can be, um, you know, in sound as right now, right? We're we're um, uh, talking and having this conversation in a podcast. So I think that consistent sort of tacking forth between modes um, is useful for students to, again, remind them um, of that that experience of newness that Derek was talking about. And, um, and also for faculty, that experience of newness, if they're really comfortable just talking about words, it can be a really good experience for faculty to, um, to experiment with something that may not feel as comfortable and may not be a space where they are potentially as confident so they can have that experience of newness as well. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us about the next projects that you will be working on? Um, that's a that's actually a great question because the three of us are um, in the middle of two future collaborations. Um, one and and actually this just piggybacks on the on the answers that Kate and Derek just gave about um, visual working with visuals. Um, one is a kind of visual rhetorical rendering of the try this project and and collaboration and what we wanted folks in the field to kind of get out of of this particular project. Uh, So we're all working together on creating that as a visual argument for for composition studies. And then we're also currently collaborating on um, a chapter in an edited collection um, that reflects on... uh, research methods in graduate education. Um, and I, I'll, I'll just stop there and I'll let uh, Derek and Kate jump off from these and if they'd like to talk about some of their own um, individual research projects as well. I can pick that, I guess I'll pick that thread up just to say that I have um, uh, ambitions, <laughs> which I describe that way because I, I'm, I'm in a project that I feel like I've been in the middle of for a few years now. Um, uh, that is is really meant to be a kind of a blended image text where it's got visual components, but that it's also it's also doing sort of a different kind of work um, as a quasi scholarly monograph. Um, but the, the you know the, the the reason I say that it's it's a it's sort of a long slow work in progress is that it's the you know the pandemic was no friend to those of us who are in writing program administration, and there's it's just been sort of challenging to. Um, to maintain the right kind of like, you know, my own preferred kind of work paces with that, that book. Um, but, uh, but it is, it is in a way, I think extended from some of the things we've been talking about today, where it's, it's inflected with research. It's doing some sorts of, um, um, associative memory work, but it's also got a heavily visual component. And, um, uh, I'm excited to, when I can spend time on it, I'm excited to get back to it. And I'm, I'm really excited about the two pro- projects we're working on that um, are coming from Try This, and then the two next really huge projects that I'm, I'm excited about, but I'm also stressed about thinking about them, um, are two special issues that I'm working on with some colleagues um, because a um, project that I have been working on simultaneously with Try This um, is... It, is using all of the methods that we talk about and try this, but for very different purposes that are largely related to my work as a writing program administrator. Um, and they're about guided self-placement. And so um, I'm working with some colleagues on um, talking about sort of the technicalities 
about implementing guided self-placement, which is a, a way of um, placing students into first-year writing classes using multiple measures of placement beyond standardized tests. Um, so we're, we're talking about sort of just the logistics of that and um, the projects we're working on. Um, and, and we think it's important for discussions about guided self-placement to be open um, and accessible so that um, faculty at other universities can sort of adopt and adopt these ideas. And um, it's a really, it's a pretty big project to take on. So I think the more support folks can have, the better. Well, we'll be looking forward to those projects. I would like to thank you for being on the podcast. And again, we've been talking with the authors of Try This, Research Methods for Writers. Thank you again. Thanks so much. Thank you so much.